Well, I'm going to set uh, this little guy here. My wife this morning said, uh, what's creepy Jesus for? And so we'll, uh, <laughs> creepy Anglo-Saxon Jesus. So we're going to talk about that in a moment. But uh, last week, we looked at the fact that after predicting and pulling off his own death and resurrection, Jesus said, okay, this isn't the end. Um, there's another chapter that has to come first. My ecclesia. We use the German word kirche or church. It means uh, a building to gather at. But Jesus was not talking about or referring to a building. He was describing a unified movement. And think of it, this nobody day laborer from Nazareth. He said, I'm starting something with you and nothing is going to stop it. And 2,000 years later, here we are this morning. And around the globe, millions and millions of people. And so he was exactly right people that are part of what he called his ecclesia. And if you've missed any of this series, I strongly urge you to get online or your favorite podcast app and to go back and, and catch any of the previous talks that we've had because we have spent the past several weeks discovering how what we call the Bible is actually a gathering of 66 books written by over 40 different authors over a period of 2,000 years on three different continents in three different languages and how it all pieces together in one singular story a story of redemption. And we've been looking at several pivotal characters as chapters to help us see how this larger story fits together and how it's all unfolding. A story that we are a part of because God is just as active today as he has been in the past. And today we're going to talk about God. And we're going to talk about the perfection of Father. And the word that we're going to associate with God is the word presence. And we're going to take an in-depth look as to what's next at the end of this chapter. And the big question for all of us today is this, is what we've been asked to wait for worth waiting for? Is what we've been asked to wait on worth waiting on? Last week, Jesus made it clear that what's happening now, this church thing, is part of an age that has bookends, but that he would be with us until the end of this age, that there's another chapter yet to happen. But the question is, is it really worth waiting for? Is it worth being excited about? Is it worth looking forward to? And most of us who would say, I'm a believer, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, if we answered according to the priority of our hearts and our thoughts, our answer would be something along the lines of, I'm sure it will be good, but how good could it possibly be? Like if you ask me, do I live every day in anticipation of the next chapter in the story, the answer would really have to be no. And the reason I know this is because you've thought thoughts like I've thought, or you've said things like maybe, well, you know, if Jesus is going to come back, I sure hope he'll wait until after. I sure hope he'll wait until after. Whatever it is that we want to experience in this life that we think is going to be so good and so fun and so fulfilling, like I hope he's going to wait until after spring break. I hope he waits because I've got this big vacation plan. I've, I've not had sex yet. I hope he waits until after that. If Jesus is going to come back, I sure hope he'll wait until after I get married, for sure after the honeymoon. Or if Jesus is going to come back, I sure hope he'll wait till I have the chance to have kids or see my kids grow up or have the opportunity to be a grandparent. I mean, I know it's going to be good, but there are still some things that I want to experience in this life. And the reason we have those thoughts is because God is about this big and this grand and this glorious in our thinking. We have such a small, thwarted, insignificant, insufficient view of God 
that we don't even really look forward to what lies ahead. And in fact, for most of us, it would be one big colossal interruption because we have plans. We have options, and we spend a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of money focused on trying to carve out a little piece of heaven on earth. And the idea of God coming too soon, honestly, it just seems like one big interruption. Because if you give me enough time and enough opportunity and enough friends and enough money, I can have a wrinkle-free little piece of heaven on earth life right here. And some of you, like me, you've either lived places or you've traveled to places that are just so beautiful. You've had vacations or maybe a honeymoon where you've had this thought, do I have to go back home? Like, can I not just stay, like, right here? I mean, I've got this much money. I've got three, four, seven, maybe seven credit cards. How long could I stay here before they're all maxed out and they come hunting for me? Like two years, five years, and deep down, you just didn't want to return to reality. I mean, many of you, you, you've had an experience or a vacation like that or an incredible moment with someone that you loved. It was just so good. You just didn't want it to end. Like, I don't want this moment to end. And that's a glimpse of our desire for, our pursuit of, our belief that we're experiencing a bit of heaven on earth. And we think we know, we, we, we think I know the next chapter is going to be better, but seriously, how much better Could it be compared to having enough money, enough time, enough opportunity, enough love, enough sex, enough whatever it is right here? And then someone gets sick. You take a big financial hit. You lose a job. You face the implosion of a relationship or of a marriage. A loved one dies. You lose a parent. You have a miscarriage. You lose a child. You watch one of your children make poor decisions that are going to hurt them. You're still single or you're single again, and being single was never the dream. You begin to think, my marriage is a mistake. Or you wake up one morning and you look at your life and you go, this isn't the way I thought my life would go, my dreams. As I look to the future, they're not going to come true. And there's just enough cracks and bumps and events in this life to remind us that this isn't it. This world has promised more than it can deliver. And the older we get, the more that we experience, the more we come to the realization that as hard as I work to create this wrinkle-free world where everything is just right, deep in my heart, I know this isn't it. We all experience this, and C.S. Lewis said it this way, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And we're told emphatically by Jesus and those who spent time with him, something is coming. Something big is coming. Jesus is coming back, which part of me wants to go, why would you do that? Like the last time you came didn't go so well for you, like the religious leaders crucified you. Much of the church has been misusing and abusing this this gathering of texts for so long. Why in the world would you want to come back? And it's simple. Because as we've said from week one, when sin drove a wedge between us and God, God began to lay the groundwork to reestablish relationship with us. 
in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our confusion, because from day one, God has desired an intimate relationship with humankind. And every parent listening to my voice, in spite of what our children may do in the future or have done to us, in spite of how they may be or have been disrespectful or rebelled, if you're a parent, you understand this concept, a desire to connect or reconnect with your child that is so strong that you are willing to overlook all kinds of problems, all kinds of wrongdoing, if there is any hope for reuniting or reconnecting with a son or a daughter who has rejected or abandoned relationship with you. It's not enough for them to simply come home physically. You want their hearts. You want their souls. You long for genuine relationship, and you are willing to do almost anything to make that happen. And I believe this is the thumbprint of God on every mother and father, because parent God desires the same thing. He wants your heart. He wants your soul. And so generations and generations and generations ago, God laid the groundwork to woo the human race in his direction into a love relationship with him, not forcing us, not showing up in a way to intimidate us, but through the prophets and the stories and the narratives and the miracles and the coming of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the establishing of the church and the sending of the Holy Spirit through the centuries God has worked to win the hearts so as to have the kind of relationship that he lost in the garden. But Scripture tells us that the day of wooing and trying to capture our attention will come to an end. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app and you want to look with me all the way, we're going to be at the very end of the book, the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 21. Revelation is basically another prophecy, a foretelling of things and events to come. Now, you need to understand, every time a prophecy was given in the Old or the New Testament, the people who heard the prophet would go, what? I don't think so. Like, that's just, that's not going to happen. That's fairy tale. And as we listen this morning, there's going to be something in you, whether you're a believer or not, that you're, you're just going to find yourself going, I, I just don't know. You just need to know. That's the natural response to prophecy because it's about the future and it seems so unrealistic. But here's the other thing that it will do. It will elicit hope because it will fill that gap and give you hope for fulfillment of that desire that's in you and in me, the desire that nothing else in this world can satisfy. And we all have it. Because this is our ultimate destination and destiny. Here's what the Apostle John says. God is giving him a glimpse of what the future looks like. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. This may come as a surprise to some of you, but for those of you who put your trust in Christ, you will not spend eternity in heaven. You'll spend eternity on a new earth, a brand new earth. God is going to redesign and recreate the earth so that your ultimate destiny is not heaven. It's a brand new earth, and there's no more sea, which means that finally and ultimately there will be no more division among humankind. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne, and imagine what loud in heaven must sound like, saying, look, God's dwelling place is now, at last, finally, after all we've covered these past nine weeks, after being kicked out of the garden, after making a promise, after creating a family and creating a nation and promising the world, after periods of rebellion and periods of silence, after sending his son, after the resurrection, the earth age, the church age, finally, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And you say, well, I I thought God was already with us and already my God, not like he will be. It will be incredible. It's a brand new thing, a brand new relationship, a brand new sense of God's literal presence that we have never experienced and cannot fully comprehend, that God will dwell with man. It is what he's been working towards throughout the generations. And I know this is going to disappoint you, but the first thing that God is going to do is not answer all of your silly questions or mine. I mean, you've heard it, maybe you've said it, you know, when I get to heaven, I got some questions for God, you know, first thing I'm going to do, ask it, no. God says no. The first thing that is going to happen is that I am going to reach down and I'm going to touch the cord of your deepest hurt, heartbreak, and fears. I'm going to reach down I'm going to touch all the isolation and loneliness and insecurities and pain and anxiety and all of the dreams that never came true. All your disappointments and your anger with me throughout the generations because I didn't do what you thought I should do. And I am going to gently wipe every tear from your eyes. Could there be a more intimate picture of God dwelling with men and with women, with you and with me. Not King God at a distance, but Father God doing what good fathers do, wiping tears from their children's eyes. He will be as present as he can possibly be, and it gets better. From that point forward, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Why? Because the old order of things has passed away. God is saying, I am going to give you what you have longed for your entire life. You will never again battle depression, anxiety, or fear. You will never again look in the mirror and feel shame or insecurity. You will never again grieve a failed pregnancy attempt, a miscarriage, a loss of a baby. You will never have another painful, complicated childbirth. Can the women say amen? You will never again stand by the hospital bed or the hospice bed of a loved one and watch them suffer. You will never again watch your child drive away wondering if they're ever going to come back. You will never again experience betrayal, being cheated, or being cheated on. You will never hurt again. God says, I'm going to answer all those prayers that you have been crying out to me generation after generation after generation, and in one moment, I am finally going to do away with death, sorrow, and pain. For I will dwell among mankind once and for all. It is like nothing you and I can imagine. Because finally, things will be as he ultimately always intended them to be. It's overwhelming to imagine. Do you see why that's where we need to place our hope? And not here 
Because in my little piece of heaven on earth, it's filled with sickness and death and sorrow and disease and anxiety and depression and disappointment and dreams that don't come true. And if I define God by my little bitty life on earth experience, I will misdefine God and I will shrink him down to something that I can manage and something that I can stick into a cabinet until I need him and something I can shake my finger out and go, I've got some questions for you. He goes on, the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He said, write this, because these words are faithful and true. It's a picture of a king telling the scribe, write this down. I'm sealing it with my ring. This is going to happen. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And then he speaks these words to us in this generation, in the church age. He says, to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit this and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Now, you need to understand, like, victorious or victor in this context, it doesn't mean someone who achieves something by their own efforts or accomplishes. This, this isn't the Hunger Games, okay? This is a picture of somebody who has a specific status given to them by God through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, you will inherit all of this, a new earth, a new, a good, a perfect existence, and a reality, and I will be your God, and you personally, you'll be my son, you'll be my daughter, you'll be my child. Can you imagine? Isn't that what you long for? Isn't, every time you pray, isn't that what you long for? Every time you pray and say, God, just say something, just do something, just send me a sign. Just show up. Even if it's a say something, even if it's a no, I can take that. But don't be silent. I mean, isn't that what you long for? Every, isn't that what you wonder every time you pray? Does he really hear me? Does he really care? Does he feel my hurt? Does he feel my pain? Feel my anxiousness? Isn't the cry of the human heart, God, dwell with me? Show up. Be real to me. And God, your Father, says the day's coming. The day is coming when it will be all of that and far more, so beyond what you can imagine, I promise. And then he gets to the disturbing part in verse 8. About the future. But, and this is a big contrast, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. He's trying to describe something with earthly terms. And in those verses, the Lord Jesus speaks to John and reminds us that in the age to come, in the final chapter, that God will no longer slide over to compensate and atone for and cover sin. That sin must be dealt with in a final way. And here's the thing. Even if you're not a Christian, not a Jesus follower, you, you understand this concept. I mean, think of it. Anytime we or someone we love is wronged, we intuitively sense there is a debt that is now owed that must be paid. 
But many times there really is no payment that can fully restore what was taken or what was lost, is there? And when we're victims of an offense, small or maybe big and painful, or we see atrocities committed, rape, child trafficking, murder, mass murder, I mean, what do we think, whether we're religious or not? We think somebody needs to pay. The perpetrators need to pay. But the truth is, even if it's life in prison, even if it's the death penalty or execution, deep down, we know there's still something, it's not resolved. There's still dissonance. It's not enough. I mean, even with Hitler and the key Nazi leaders dead, executed, or in prison, even with planners and perpetrators of 9-11 hunted down in prison or killed, the leaders of ISIS, even if they played, paid with their life. I mean, we go to these extremes and go, you know, but there's still, the debt is never really fully paid. I mean, you've heard it said or even said it yourself in certain heinous crimes, like a bullet is too good for that person. It's too good, it's too quick, it's too merciful because no matter the ending of an evil person in this life, there's still dissonance, there remains unresolved pain and destruction and something taken. I mean, innocent people are still maimed or dead, young girls are still raped or enslaved and lifelong trauma still lives on. And so we understand the longing for evil, for sin to be dealt with in a final, utterly complete and fully satisfying way. Sin must be finally and completely addressed And God says that day is coming. And on that day, all those who have yet to put their faith in Christ and given the status of overcomer and prevailer through faith in Jesus Christ, those who have never surrendered their life to Christ, he gives a warning. He warns that they'll be cast out to a place reserved for them and there they will go for eternity. Now, I don't like this part of the Bible, and neither do you. It's uncomfortable. It seems extreme. And if God would give me an eraser or a delete button and close his eyes for about five minutes, I'd go right after these verses, and so would you. But do you know why I feel that way? Do you know why you feel that way? Because, again, God is about this big and this holy. They're about that high. And I am far more comfortable with sin than I am judgment of sin. I mean, aren't you? I mean, it's like, I know sin is bad, but I can deal with that, you know, like, but the idea of finally judging sin, that makes me uncomfortable. And the reason is because I am a sinner. So, of course, I'm more comfortable balancing the scales of like, well, these are big sins, and these deserve this, and these are more medium-sized, and there's this little one as long as no one gets hurt. I mean, that's the world that you and I live in, and the idea that a holy God would come down and judge sin once and for all, I'm just so uncomfortable with that. And yet, whether I like it or not, whether you like it or not, it's going to happen, whether you understand it or not. It's going to happen. Because let's just be honest, there's a lot of things in life that we don't understand. But they happen. And isn't it interesting that people will reject Christianity because they don't understand how a loving God could judge sinners, but they never reject Christianity because they can't imagine how a holy God would let sinners into heaven in the first place. Or a new earth. I mean, the question isn't how could God do that to sinners. The question is how does anybody go to heaven? 
How is it that we think somehow we deserve heaven, but that it's unfair for God to judge sin once and for all? Because again, it's because God is about this big and this holy and this high. And we completely underestimate the significance of sin and what happened on the cross and why. And the New Testament teaches throughout that there will be a final judgment for those who have yet to put their faith in Christ, that there will be no more provision. And just so you know, I'm right there with you with the natural question. And that is, well, what about those who have never heard about Jesus? Like, and we always pick like these remote places in the world. It's just, and I've seen this used as an excuse to keep God at an arm's distance. But my two-part response is going to sound contradictory and maybe even a little harsh. But my first response is, that's not your problem. That's God's problem. You have knowledge that you have to make decision, a decision about as it pertains to you. So don't deflect. The, the, the fact is, for those of us that live in the U.S., we have access, incredible access, to life-saving medical care that the majority of the world could only dream of. Would you refuse life-saving treatment or medicine for you or for your child or your loved one because others in the world didn't have access? Of course you wouldn't. You're going to act on what you know and what's available to you regardless, regardless of who does or does not have access. And my second response is, if they don't know, what are you going to do about it? See, if you've been at New Life for any length of time, you've heard me remind us again and again that the ultimate mission of this New Life community is for us to help people find and follow Jesus because we believe all this. Our core responsibility, if you're a Christian as a Jesus follower, is to get this news to people who have yet to hear and believe. But I will say this, for those who never hear in this life about Jesus... Again, ultimately, that's God's problem. But here's what I also believe, and I'm convinced of, that God is a trustworthy God. And in the end, he will do what is right for each and every individual. Well, John goes on. If you skip down to verse 32, there's this great city that descends. And of course, John, in his day, was looking for a temple because in his mind, that's where God dwells. But he says, I didn't see a temple in this city. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and its Lamb, they are the temple. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. And John alludes to the fact that when God shows up this time, unlike the Garden of Eden, unlike the coming of Christ, God is going to show up in all of his glory. And no one has ever seen God in all of his glory. Theologians have said for years that when we see God in all of his glory, it is going to solidify once and for all our decision to love him and follow him, that we will retain our ability to love and worship freely. But when we see all of him in all of his glory, essentially we will come to the conclusion, how in the world would you ever turn your back or turn away from or sin against or disappoint or show anything but love to such a God and to such a Savior? See, throughout both Testaments, the Old and the New, God would every now and then reveal just a little bit of his glory, just a little beep, and, and when he does, Isaiah falls on his face. And the soldiers that came to arrest Jesus, they come all angry and bowed up and armed, and 
I am he. And a little bit of his glory leaked out and they fall to their faces in fear. Imagine God in all of his glory dwelling with man. And in this age of choice, like any good father or parent, he doesn't want to force or overwhelm us back through a demonstration of his glory, but to win us back through a demonstration of his love through Jesus. Because he wants your heart. He wants your soul. And you listen to all this this morning, you go, Chad, I, I, I can't imagine. None of us can imagine it. There's something in you goes, it's just hard to believe. It's just hard to embrace. It's hard to fathom. It's hard to imagine. I want you to know it's hard for me too. And if I were looking just within the context of my little life and my little world, I'm not sure I could believe it. Exactly what Abraham must have thought when God said, Abraham, I'm going to make your name and nation, I'm going to make your nation a great nation so that every family in the world will be blessed through you. They're going to know your name and know the nation. You don't have any children, but just trust me. It's my promise, Abraham. And Abraham must have thought, okay, whatever. And God did it. It must have been exactly what Moses must have thought when God said, Moses, you're going to go back to the nation that you ran from and you're going to confront the most powerful man in the world and I'm going to use you to lead my nation out from Egyptian bondage and when we're done, all of Egypt is going to know that I am God. And Moses must have been like, okay, and God did it. It must have been what David felt like as a teenager when God said, you're going to be the next king. David's like, I'm not even related to a king. doesn't matter. You're going to be the next king, and your line, from your line will come someone who's going to bless the world, and you're, he's going to sit on the throne of David forever and ever, and God did it. It must have been what Mary thought when this angel appeared to her and said, young lady, the Holy Spirit is going to come on you, and you're going to be pregnant, and you're going to have a child, and this child is going to save his people from their sins. And she must have thought, okay, and God did it. It must have been the same thing Peter thought when Jesus said, Peter, on the rock of your confession, I'm going to establish my gathering, my movement, my church, and nothing is going to stop it. It's going to be persecuted and misled and misrepresented. It's going to have all kinds of problems, but nothing will stand against it. The gates of hell will not stand against it. And he pulled it off. So the reason that I believe that there's coming a day where everything that we've talked about is is true, and it's going to happen, is not because of what I see around me, and it's not because I have faith that's greater than anyone else's. It's because you and I have the vantage point of history, and what God has done, and if he in fact fulfilled his promises in the past, why would we for a second think that he's not going to fulfill his promises to you and to me in the future? There's coming a day when God is going to dwell with men and women. Does this matter on a daily basis? Yeah, it matters. And if you're here today or you're listening and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, he's just given you one more opportunity to say yes to him and to say yes to his son. And John writes, he says, both the spirit and the bride say, come. Anyone who hears should say, come. And to the one who is thirsty, they should come. Whoever desires, just come. Take the living water as a gift. I mean, you know what this means? It means that regardless of your past, whoever knows in their heart there's more to this life than this life, Whoever has tried everything that the world has had to offer and just come up empty again and again and again to him or her who knows it's not just another relationship. It's not just another raise. It's not another job, a house, another car, another sexual encounter. It's like I've had these. I've come up empty to the one who is thirsty and knows that there is nothing in this life that can completely and finally quench the thirst that I have. He says, come. And whoever wishes... Let him take the, what's the word? The gift. 
of the water of life. Because it's not something you can earn. It's just a gift. All this matters. Because what we've been told about the future, it's going to happen. And your decision about who Jesus is determines your destiny. And the people around you that you care about, their decision about who Jesus is determines their destiny. Because God loves us, He's simply given us the opportunity as well as the clear warning. He's simply given us invitation because this is the age where God has slid over to compensate for yours and for my sin. But the day will come where one way or another, your decision will have been finalized and made. Does it matter for those of us who are believers? Yes, it matters. Because if we could just for five minutes a day attach all of our hopes and dreams and our future and our sense of destiny and the fact that one day God is going to dwell with us, it will impact everything. Every relationship, your attitude towards school, towards work, towards money, towards your spouse, towards your children, towards your parents, towards your coworkers, towards those outside the church, those inside the church, it will impact your anxiety and your depression. It will have a ripple effect through every facet of your life. If you understand that there is something unbelievably amazing yet to come, it's just a matter of time. And there is a power in that kind of anticipation. And when we keep that front and center in our lives, our hearts and our minds, it affects every area of life. In a little book called The Sacred Romance, John Eldred says it this way, who wants to fill up with snacks on Thanksgiving Day? Who goes out and buys presents for himself on Christmas Eve? Is there anyone in his right mind who looked for someone to date at their wedding rehearsal? And then don't miss this. When we are convinced that something delicious is about to be ours, we are free to live in expectation, and it draws us on in anticipation. That's the power of knowing and attaching our hopes and dreams to the day that is yet to come, and learning to see all of life through the lens and the grid of eternity. I remember when the day of our wedding arrived, one year and four months of planning and preparation, way too long. <laughs> a thousand decisions to obsess over, and we talked and dreamed about getting and being married, and, and there were pictures and a rehearsal. And then the moment came when I was standing there with my best man, and the back doors opened up, and there she stood. And in that moment, uh, I was overwhelmed by two thoughts. The first being how incredibly beautiful Shauna looked. The second being, oh my gosh, I'm about to get married. I am not responsible or mature enough to be married. What, what is happening? <laughs> See, I'd read about it, I'd thought about it, I'd imagined it, but until that moment, I couldn't fully comprehend it. And when Shauna and I decided to start trying for children, we were very fortunate did not have to wait long, and her pregnancy was healthy. And as her belly grew, we celebrated, and we shopped, and there were showers. We prepared our tiny home. We painted a nursery, and I would talk and sing to her belly. And we'd chosen not to find out the gender ahead of time. And finally, the moment came in the delivery room where into this world popped a wailing, slimy baby boy with a lopsided head. And 
And after cleaning him up, they cleaned him up, they put him in my arms. I stood there, speechless and in tears. Because I read about it, I thought about it, I imagined it. But in that moment, I just realized I hadn't fully comprehended. See, we've, we've read about it, we've thought about it, we've sung about it, we've tried to imagine it, but our feeble little minds, we can't even begin to comprehend it. And yet, this trustworthy gathering of documents tells us that there's coming a day when God is going to dwell with men and women. And we're going to stand there with our mouths open in awe. We will likely fall on our faces. And as much, of us, as much as some of us may have looked forward to it, it's going to be so beyond anything we could have imagined or hoped for. That there's coming a day for those who have decided, like those who have come before us, to trust Him and to trust in His Son that He sent for us. There's coming a day when God is going to wipe away every tear from your eye and He's going to erase from your mind all the disappointments and all the pain in your life. There's coming a day where there will be no more longing, no more sorrow, no more disappointment, no more anxiety or fear because there's coming a day when your Father in Heaven will dwell with us on a brand new earth. This is one story, our story, a story of redemption. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful to you. I'm so grateful that we have the documents that we have, that the witnesses took the time to write all this down for us and for those that preserved them. God, we know so much more was written that we just have not read or seen or that just got lost through time. So I'm so grateful for what we have. I'm so grateful for what you revealed, not just through Jesus, but in through John, so that we could, as a good and loving Father would, you've given us a heads up what's to come. So I pray for every one of us, God. We are so pressed on by everything that's going on in life and the world and the stresses and the things that create anxiousness in our heart. For those that are feeling pain, our worlds get really, really small, and so do you. So I pray, Father, for a breakthrough for everyone listening to my life, wherever they're at, everyone listening to me, wherever they're at, that, God, that you would help them to break through whatever barriers are preventing them from seeing you as you really are and to experiencing that trust in you. And Father, I pray for all of us that we say we're your followers, we believe in you, that you would give us great love and great boldness and great courage, but great compassion and patience in sharing the good news in a way that connects with people. And that we would love people in such a sacrificial, unconditional way that it would be compelling to them desire to know you because we get all that from your son and so father we we pray all this i pray all this in in his name in the name of jesus amen